place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made, a li you made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not yet see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. But one who makes people holy, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am. And the children of God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. This is, uh, this is the reading. Good morning. Good to see you all. Would you pray with me? God, you are so good. And you truly are, Lord Jesus, worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And um, God, we want to make continue to make much of you. God, we've we've just sang your praises, and now God, we want to proclaim your praises. And uh, God, I pray that that you would, um, whatever we brought in here today, God, that is maybe distracting us, I pray that you would help us leave it behind. And, um, and I pray, uh, Spirit of God, that you would uh, use, that you would take um, the Word of God and that you would implant it deep into our hearts, that you would change us, um, that we'd be transformed this morning from one more degree of glory to another, that you might be honored and glorified. God, I'm a, I'm a beggar in need of grace this morning, as always, maybe a little bit more this morning, and I just pray, God, that you would meet me, that I would stand behind your word, not in front of it, and that you would use me as a conduit of your mercy and grace uh, for this congregation this morning. We love you. We pray all these things in the powerful name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and God's people said, amen. Well, good morning again, um, and I I, uh, I am in need of God's grace this morning, as always. 
Um, this honestly is one of the most difficult passages that I've ever um, uh, had to <laughs> um, parse and uh, understand and now teach. And, um, and I've determined <clears throat> that I am not going to do it justice, but I don't need to. God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and that he will accomplish his work this morning um, as, uh, as we are attentive to it. So um, if you're new with us here today, and um, I, I missed Stephen's announcements, but I assume he said this. I'm going to say it again. We teach through books of the Bible because we believe that all of God's word, all 66 books, is inspired. It's inerrant. It's God's word uh, to us. Um, then when it was written, and it's his, God's, it's his word to us today. <clears throat> and that um, all the books, it's one, one narrative of uh, one giant theme, and that is his, God's love and his desire to redeem a people for himself. And so we're going we're gonna to celebrate that this morning. I've titled this sermon, The Hypostatic Union, Jesus 100% Human. And if I could wrap it, I would, but I can't, so I won't, because it's got a little bit of a rhyme to it. And I'll explain to you in just a minute. We're not going to go too deep into it, but, it's, um, um, but I, I pray that you'll find it um, intriguing and uh, edifying as well. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is being written to Christians in the first century who were, uh, who were being opposed. They were in the midst of persecution. It was probably written um, right around the uh, fall or right before the fall of Jerusalem um, during the reign of Nero. This passage has application for us today as it will remind us of God's help for his people. Um, his help by sending Jesus, certainly, and his help continues um, through the person of Jesus Christ for his people today. It's a passage, today's passage is a, a passage of comfort in the face of difficult circumstances. Today's passage will bring us face to face with the reality and brilliance of Jesus' humanity. And I want to ask you, do you wrestle more with the humanity of Jesus or the deity of Jesus? For Jesus' first disciples, it was never a problem acknowledging that he was human. No one questioned his humanity in that first 33 years of his public ministry, or his first 33 years of life, his three years of public ministry, because he was born. He was born of a woman. He grew in stature. He grew tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He became physically weak, and he died. And after his resurrection, he was seen eating and walking. What was not apparent at first and was progressively revealed by his life and resurrection was that he was also God. You see, his first disciples, it was easy to understand that Jesus was human. But it took a while for them to get it into their head and their heart that he was, in fact, God. His closest disciples who knew his humanity eventually started worshiping him as God. But it wasn't long after Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father that questions came from the opposite direction. His disciples believed that he was God, but they tended to struggle with the fullness of his humanity or his humanness. I would guess that many of us today would struggle with Jesus' humanness. Many of, many of us have been reading uh, the book called um, Gentle and Lowly, and the author brings, uh, brings right to front and center the humanity and the emotions and the will of Jesus. One of the first heresies in the early church, we see it in 1 John and 2 John, 
was the error that Jesus was not truly human. For over 2,000 years, those opposed to Jesus have rejected his deity. And too many of his followers have been slow to, ex- uh, to, uh, to own the extent of his, of his uh, humanity. The ancient doubts about the God-man, full and perfect in his divinity and humanity, have come down to us today in this passage, even among those who call themselves his followers. Jesus, the Son of God, became the Son of Man. And in doing so, he remained fully divine and became fully human. This should actually blow our circuits. It's a a mystery in many ways. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and some have called this the hypostatic union. The meaning of hypostatic union is much easier than the term sounds, but the concept is as profound as anything in theology. And I think it's important for us to understand it. Our English adjective, hypostatic, comes from the Greek word, hypostatus. And this word, hypostatus, only appears four times in all of Scripture, and maybe most profoundly in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where the author says that Jesus is said to be the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. The author of Hebrews uses the word in reference to the oneness of God. That the the Trinity is one God in three persons. Both the Father and the Son are the same nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. So the hypostatic union is the mysterious personal union of Jesus' two natures, of the divine nature of God and the human nature of Jesus in one person. Today's passage will bring us the beautiful reality of Jesus' humanity and why he needed to become man and what was accomplished and how it benefits us today. I think it's also going to show us that there is no other human being that can fix anything in this world, that Jesus is the perfect human, that we put way too much hope in other humans to meet our deepest desires, whether it be desires for love and affection or whether it be desires for political correctness. Let's start with verse 5. For it was, not the, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, the author of Hebrews made the case that Jesus is greater than the angels. I'd encourage you to listen to it. Uh, Stephen Atherton taught this last week, or uh, two weeks ago. Gordon taught last week. So in Hebrews 1.13, the author of Hebrews made the case that Jesus is greater than the angels, and he quoted Psalm 110, verse 1. It says this, And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The, what is the right hand of God? The right hand of God is a position of honor. This is a, this is a messianic prophecy. Psalm 110 is a messianic prophecy of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, heir to the throne of David, and seated at God's right hand. And making one an enemy, uh, making one's enemy a footstool was an ancient Near Eastern picture of absolute victory, portraying the idea that one's enemy was now underfoot of the king. They were in complete subjection to the king. Then he goes on to say in verse six, it has been testified somewhere. I'm not sure exactly why the why the author of Hebrews said it was testified somewhere. 
because we know exactly what he's going to say next was testified by King David in Psalm 8. In fact, he's going to quote um, almost word for word a portion of Psalm 8. But he says, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. There is some controversy with the commentators. Um, it to, is the author of Hebrews talking about hum- humanity, mankind here, or is he talking about Jesus? Most of them, and where I've landed for right now, is that so far in verses 6, 7, and 8, the author of Hebrews is talking about mankind. And I'll make a case for that here in just a minute. Um, These words here in verses 6 through 8 are clearly based on the words of the Creator in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. And it goes like this. So God created man in his own own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God crowned humanity with glory and honor and he made us as kingly representatives of the earth and everything in it to have dominion over every created thing. But that ended in Genesis 3. That this this kingly responsibility that Adam and Eve um, uh, set it aside by sinning. The first humans sinned and the entirety of God's creation on earth is now subject to decay and death. And as a result of man being incapable of fulfilling that divinely ordained position, there there needed to be another one that was appointed as the perfect man to restore humanity to its original creation. But as a result of this fall, humans were temporary, uh, temporarily lower in status and authority than the angels who are immortal. I was like, why are, why are human beings of lesser status? Why are we lower than the angels? It's because the angels are immortal. They won't die. And we were reminded yesterday in this place as we immoralized, uh, as, we, uh, as we memorialized my, my Nancy's dad that we are all human. That the, that the psalmist tells us to number our days. To be cognizant of, cognizant of the fact that, um, that we are decaying and that we are dying. Let's take a look at Psalm 8. And again, this psalm is quoted in verses 7 through 8. And David is, uh, seems to write this after uh, or while gazing at the stars and the moon. And he's in awe of God's creation. Have you ever been that way where you've seen a sunset or a sunrise? Or you've, you've seen the beauty of creation when you're in the backwoods hunting? And you're in awe of creation and you, and you just pause and go, God, like, how can you think of me? Like, I'm just, I'm, a, I'm an insignificant um, spot, grasshopper on this earth. So David's in awe of God's creation, wondering how the creator of heaven and earth could give any thought to sinful humanity. Let me read Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you would care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The Old Testament story, the Old Testament narrative in many ways reflects a repeated failure to fulfill the commission of kingship given to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses, David, Israel, and the list goes on and on and on. And instead of humanity fulfilling the commission of kingship that God gave us, we see instead chaos and fighting and war and weeds and death. When David wrote this psalm, he was holding on to the promise God made to him in 2 Samuel that he knew there was a promise for humanity. But he knew that his ancestors and even he himself had fallen short of this kingly, um, the, the, the scepter of kingship that was given to humanity. And David was holding on to this promise while he was asking God, how can you even think of me? And here's the promise that David was holding on to in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. We call it the Davidic covenant. And this is Nathan speaking for God to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David clung to this promise. But this side of the cross... We don't just cling to the promise. We have hope in the fulfillment of that promise. We believe in the fulfillment of that promise. Verse 9, back to Hebrews chapter 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The, di the divine commission of Adam as king over God's creation and the promise of David's offspring established in a kingdom forever is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the son of man, the true human, the divine offspring of David prophesied in 2 Samuel 12 and all throughout scripture. The son of God leaves heaven as humanity to his deity is born the son of man, walks among us, suffers, is raised and exalted to the right hand of God. He did this in order to take on what was due us and redeem us from the curse of death. This echoes of what, of what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. And what you're getting today is just a ton of scripture. My prayer is that what just washes over you like it's washed over to me the last 24 hours. 
Paul said this, speaking to Christians, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself of all the rights that he enjoyed for eternity past as the Son of God. And he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grand narrative, as I started out, the grand narrative, the, the meta-narrative, if I, if I might, of the entire Bible, is that God might bring many sons and daughters to glory. The grand narrative isn't that he would just forgive us of our sins, that he created a people for himself. He created humanity to be in a personal, intentional, forever, grace-filled, loving relationship with their creator. The grand narrative is God's unfolding plan to bring many sons and daughters to glory. God created humanity to be loved by him in a relationship with him. God is perfect in every way. He has no blemish. So in his perfect justice, it was impossible for him to have anything to do with you and me. It was impossible. The sins of mankind committed against a holy and just God needed to be atoned for. They needed to be paid for. Taste us to verses 10 and 11. For it was fitting that he... God, for whom and by whom all things exist and bring in many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he, Jesus, who sanctifies, and those, you, you who know Jesus Christ, are sanctified, all have one source. Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. Why is it fitting or right for the eternally existent God to accomplish salvation the way he did in Christ? It's because he's righteous. And that all sin needs to be punished. And he's also loving. In God's perfect righteousness, he could not and cannot tolerate sin. In his justice, all sin needs to be punished. And in his love, he saves or sanctifies those who by faith in the source of sanctification, Jesus, the perfect son of God and son of man. In Hebrews 12, verses uh, verses 12 through 13, the author cites Psalm 22, 22 and Isaiah 8, 17 through 18, to show that the followers of the one unique Son of God are now called sons. For we are adopted into a newly redeemed human family through Jesus' perfect life and sacrifice. He goes on to say in verse 12, or verse 11, uh, second half of verse 11 and verse 12, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is quoted, as I just mentioned, from Psalm 22, 22. This is a messianic psalm. It's talking about Jesus. The eternal Son of God came into our midst or into the congregation of humanity, if you will, to be with us and to bring us into his family. 
And then in verse 13, he quotes Isaiah 8, 17, and 18 and to, to, um, for us to understand this messianic expression that Jesus fully trusted in the Father and expresses the solidarity of Jesus with the people of God. And he says, and again, I will put my faith in him. This is Jesus saying, I'll put my faith in, Je- in, in the Father. Jesus um, had perfect obedience. Um, trust and obedience go hand in hand. And if Jesus did not trust the Father and have perfect obedience, there would be no sacrifice for sin. There would be no um, uh, satisfaction for God's wrath. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Jesus trusted the Father in every way, and as a result of his obedience to the Father, we are not only saved by faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but we belong to Jesus' family. This is significant because because once we bear the family name, nothing can separate us from the forever family. One of the things I love about um, a couple adoption court hearings that I've gone to is that they will will, um, speak to the adopted child if the child is is old enough to understand it and to the family that's adopting and they'll say to the child, are you ready to be adopted into the forever family of such and such? And they'll say to the family, are you ready to to adopt this child into your forever family? Jesus' family is forever. It harkens back to Jesus' words in John 10 and also in John 6 and again in John 17. But let me read John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then in verses 14 through 18, we continue to see the solidarity Jesus has with humanity in that he took on flesh and blood, and he was born into a family. However, unlike what any other human being could have done, Jesus stormed the gates of hell. He defeated the evil one, and he liberated us from slavery to death. Listen to verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. By death, he destroyed death. That brings hope. By death, Jesus destroyed death. And by his death, he destroyed the one Satan who held the power over death. And he also freed us from the slavery of fear of death. If you know Jesus Christ, if you're marked by the family name, that there is no fear in death. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have some natural fears that creep in. But ultimately, our destiny is settled. That there's no wrath that is reserved for us. That we will not taste a drop of the Father's wrath. And we will not see a flickering of the flames of hell. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. If you know Jesus, you have a great, 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 great grandfather named Abraham. That doesn't mean that you're from his biological line, 
but it means that you're from his spiritual line. Listen to Galatians 3. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, knowing then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, and the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you know Jesus Christ, doesn't matter how great your life is, how full your bank account is, how crappy your life is right now, how empty your bank account is, you are amongst the most blessed people who have ever lived. That you know Jesus and it's been counted to you as righteousness. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What, what he's saying here is that um, if you're trying to earn your way to the Father through good works, you're already cursed. If you die in that state, you will be cursed toward, for eternal separation of the Father. And I fear there are, are all too many people, as I accidentally turned off my computer, there are all too many people in this world that in the name of religion are working their way to heaven. That they're trying to be good enough. I had several conversations after the funeral yesterday where the gospel was clearly proclaimed. And I had one guy say that surely God would not send somebody that has tried hard to be a good person to hell. And my answer is that he's a just God. And he's a holy God. And the only way to the Father is through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident, praise be to God for us, who put our faith in Jesus, who, who cannot do everything. Even this side of salvation, we, we, we don't do everything according to the law. We still sin. Now it is evident that no one is justified for, uh, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by becoming human. And taken our sin upon the cross. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung, who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And that's good news. Verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Speaking of Jesus. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And I love it that the ESV uses propitiation because it's a word that we should all know. We should all know it. And kids, your parents should make you spell it. We have a little spelling bee here after the service. Under the old covenant, the word propitiation was used to describe the mercy seat where the high priest once a year would sprinkle the blood uh, of, of the slaughtered animal on, on, the, on the mercy seat for the atonement of the sins of the people. 
to, to hold back the wrath of God. In most religions, it is the worshiper, not the God, who is responsible to appease the wrath of the offended deity. That's why Mormonism and Islam and other uh, religions, it's all about how good you can be. That to, that to, um, to hold off the wrath of God all depends upon me being good enough. But in reality, man is incapable of satisfying God's justice apart from Christ. The only other way for man to satisfy God's justice apart from Christ is to spend eternity in hell. You see, God's justice is going to be satisfied one way or the other. And the reason that we that this church exists to, other than to give glory, praise, and honor to God and to bring edification to the saints is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That we live in an age of grace and mercy and that the ark, the door of the ark of salvation is wide open. And one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to slam shut the door and the floods of his wrath are going to come upon everybody that has not entered the ark. So his justice will be satisfied either in the dark, in the ark or outside the ark. And our prayer is that all of our loved ones, all of our friends, might put their full faith and trust in the Son of God, in the Son of Man, the one who lived the perfect life, who died the death that we deserve to die, who rose victoriously on the third day and now sits at the right hand of the Father. So the word propitiation carries the idea of appeasement or satisfaction in this case, the violent death of Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, was sat, it satisfied the offended righteousness and wrath of God against those for whom Christ died and God so loved. Jesus was a merciful and faithful high priest because of his great love for us. He took on flesh and was obedient to the point of death, even a, a brutal death on the cross. I love what Martin Luther has to say. He said, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death or hell, we ought to say this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction or propitiation on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And might I add the Son of Man. And where he is, there I shall be also. And finally in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Time and time again in the life of Jesus, he was tempted. He was tempted to doubt the Father, and he was tempted to take the shortcut and not the path of suffering put before him. But the Son of Man, tempted in every way, trusted the Father and set his face steadfastly to accomplish the purpose for which he had come into the world. And in the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are 
yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, ascended to the right hand of the Father and ripped the curtain in half. He went as a forerunner so that we can boldly and confidently approach the throne of grace. For one day, we will be with Jesus in all of his glory, his human glory, might I add. That's another sermon. When we see Jesus, we're going to see him in his humanity, that he is fully, still fully God and fully man. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, I thank you that... Um, that you've given us your spirit that illumines your word, that helps us under, get understanding. But I confess that there are still parts of your word that are mysterious. How can it be that you are fully God and fully man? God, we know that there would be no salvation for mankind if it, was not, if it wasn't for you taking on flesh and becoming the perfect human being, becoming the perfect Israel. And we thank you that you did it, Lord Jesus, because you wanted a relationship with us. You weren't desperate for it but you knew that we were desperate for you and that you put a longing for eternity on the hearts of all of mankind. So God, I want to pray uh, right now that um, for two sets of people, for people like me who have been rescued from the power and penalty of our sin, but we're tempted along the way to doubt you to maybe fear, to give in to sin. Would you, would you help us in our weakness? Jesus, we know that you're interceding for us in our weakness, even now. So would you give us confidence that we are marked by a new family name and that you sing a new song over us? And that song is one where you've declared us innocent. That you have canceled the record of debt that stood against us. That you have forgiven all of our sin, past, present, and future, as far as the east is from the west. And that we've been adopted into your forever family. Lord Jesus, you call us brothers and sisters. And God, I pray for those that are here today that are still maybe pretending, might be regular tenders every weekend, might even crack their Bible from time to time, yet they've yet to be regenerated, they've yet to be born again. And God, I pray that today would be a day that you would draw them to yourself and that they would surrender 
their attempt to reach you on their own and that they would put their full faith for the forgiveness of their sins in the finished work of Jesus Christ. God, thank you that <laughs> for the reality that, that you are fully God and fully human and that one day we will be with you to enjoy your deity and your humanity. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus.